0: It was the 16th century in England, and a fellow named John Bradford said something that has become a quote that people still say today, and if you've never heard it, well, you get to hear it. He's standing there somewhere in England, and he sees a group of convicted criminals, convicts that are being led to their execution, and he says, but by the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. but by the grace of God. That's it, right? That's what we sing about. That's what we think about when we understand what the gospel actually is and means. It means we got something we didn't deserve, big time didn't deserve. And that's what grace means, getting what you don't deserve. Last week, we preached a Christmas message out of Isaiah 7. And we said, if you don't, if you stand firm in your faith, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. And we talked about who that faith was, who who do you put your faith in? And we talked how that was Jesus Christ. And that the, the consequences of not putting your faith in Him and standing firm in Him is in the long run eternal, but even in the short term, right, it can be extremely challenging, much more challenging than it needs to be, especially when you're in crisis. And some of you are in crisis right now. And some of you can go back not too far, and you can remember when you were in crisis, and your faith was challenged, and your world was rocked, and you had to ask yourself the question, do I have faith, who's my faith in, and how do I stand firm in it if I have it? Which is what I want to talk about today in Isaiah 9. So, if you were using a Bible under the chairs, I think it's page 559, Isaiah 9, Old Testament. I know, right? There's one in the Bible right there. So, find Isaiah, who was one of the great prophets of the Bible, 66-chapter book. You can't ignore it. It's so big. He was called the Old Testament Evangelist, this is one of his many uh, nicknames. And this is part two of the message that I started last week called, In Crisis, What Do You Trust In? What do you trust in when you're in crisis? And are you standing firm in the faith so that you will stand through it? Because when you're in crisis, all you know is right now things are really bad. And maybe it's pain, maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's emotional pain, mental anguish. Maybe it's I'm spreading over my job situation Especially at Christmas, right? That's the absolute worst time to lose your job. Except that you got some vacation there at least. You're free for the holidays, but that doesn't feel real good in the moment, probably. Could be relationships, right? Relationships lead to crisis. Money situation, whether you lost your job or not, money, money, right? We're always thinking about how am I going to pay for that? Stop spending. I know it's kind of late for me to be saying that. So, Crisis is not something that we're um, unacquainted with. On top of that, we live in a nation that's in crisis, and if you don't believe that, then you're not paying attention, right? We are the the boiling point is is, is we are approaching the boiling point. And I'm talking about financially, I'm talking about emotionally, I'm talking about politically, you name it, pick the category, we're on the edge as a nation. Crisis is, and and the news is like one headline after the other. And they're not really having to try hard to stir us up. So what do we do with that? How do we respond to that with our faith? How does our faith even help us with that? Okay? And so we're going to look at a passage today that you will probably have heard before, whether you knew it was from Isaiah 9 or not. And it's the last two verses we'll look at. For unto us a, son, a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice And righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All right, before we get to that, I want to lead you into, okay, catch you up on the context. Because we don't, we're usually in the New Testament when we're preaching, which is 2,000 years ago, right? First century A.D., first century A.D. Well, we're going 700 years before that. And it's Israel in a time in the history of the nation of Israel when the kingdom of Israel was divided Sound familiar, America, right? They had blue and red too. I don't know how they divided it up and I don't know which one was which, but they were that divided politically, religiously also. So they had it and racially, they had all. They had the trifecta. And the 10 tribes that went to the north were all still called Israel. I like to say with the little eye because they weren't the nation of Israel, they were the Northern Kingdom, Israel. And then the Southern Kingdom was called Judah because Southerners, you know. But anyway, um, so the threat on the border of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is, and that's where they're still practicing the religion in the temple, the threat is coming from the north over the the desert, and coming in is, there's there's two threats, actually. To Judah, there's an imminent threat, an immediate threat, from their northern neighbors, Israel, who had allied themselves with um, Syria. And so together, they were... They were marching towards Judah to defeat Judah so they could put a puppet king in place. And therefore, the three nations would stand up against the bully on the block who was Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria. Okay? And Assyria was coming. They'd already threatened, and they were coming. And there was nothing that was going to stop that, that king from coming and taking control of the land bridge. We've talked about the economics and trade significance of the land bridge, which was basically Israel. And then Egypt's down at the bottom. And, of course, Assyria wants to go and take Egypt. That's the breadbasket of the world at that time. And Egypt knows that. So they're coming north because they don't want to fight the battle on their own land. They want to fight it somewhere else so they don't have to make, it doesn't make it to them. So Judah's right in this vice grip of hostile forces. And we saw that God promised a wicked king in Judah, Ahaz, it's not gonna, they're not going to succeed. Israel and Syria are not going to succeed. However, because you didn't believe and because of the rapid disobedience of the nations of Israel and Judah, you will be exiled. And the king from Assyria is going to exile the northern kingdom within 10, 15 years. And it'll be another 150 years, but Judah will be exiled by the, the nation that conquers Assyria called Babylon. They will exile the southern kingdom, and then you get into the stories of the 70 years that include Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, that crowd during the, exile, the time of the exile. So it's bad news. It's crisis on a national level. It's crisis on a personal level, and, and Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 7, stand firm in your faith or you won't stand at all. And he wasn't talking about eternity. He was talking about here and now as a nation, and they didn't stand firm in their faith, and they didn't stand at all. They were exiled, okay? So God will let you fall. God will let you experience crisis to the, uh, to the, the ultimate conclusion when you do not stand in faith. Sometimes when you stand in faith, bad things still happen, Okay? I'm not going to promise you that it's easy or that everything goes like you think it should go, but it it, it is impacted by how we stand and whom we stand and how, how we stand and whom we stand. The key here is who are you looking at to be your deliverer? Who are you looking at to save you from that crisis? King Ahaz was looking to himself. He was looking to his armed forces. He was looking to his treaty with Assyria, and none of those worked. Kind of like our nation, we're relying on all these things that we have because we can, we think we can afford them. Um, Last time I checked, we were in over our heads on that. So let's start reading in verse one of chapter nine. With that background, that's the gloom and doom that they're experiencing. Israel is experiencing that when Isaiah writes the book of Isaiah, or at least they were. I guess he's writing. Some of that would have been history, but he would have been alive, so it would have been in his lifetime. Of course, he was connected to so many of the kings in Judah. He was kind of the Billy Graham of his day um, in more ways than one. So when you see the word nevertheless, you always ask the question, what's the nevertheless there for? <laughs> I've never said that one before. But anyway, no extra charge for that. Okay, so it's dark, it's gloomy, and everything, all the attacks come from the north. So that means that the region in the north, called, which we just said was Israel, the northern kingdom, In Jesus' day, 700 years later, it's called Galilee and Samaria. And the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, is called Judea in Jesus' day. That's hopefully helpful. Again, southerners, whatever. So, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. This is Isaiah prophesying. God is prophesying through Isaiah to the people of Israel in the days uh, when they're in crisis. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, that would be referring to God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Uh, I guess he's saying it twice. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the kingdoms that were in the region of Galilee. And he will honor the Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. That's the Jordan River. Okay? So in real rough terms, you have uh, the Mediterranean Sea and you have the the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, okay? And Israel's everything in between, okay? So valleys, hills, and lots of people. All right, now verse 2 is going to finish this idea. It's going to give us the first of four points. We're going to give you four points today, okay? Bonus today, you get an extra. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, On those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned okay so the the question how do I stand firm in my faith in crisis the first answer to the question is is that you walk towards the light okay the people walking in darkness have seen a great light what are they gonna do with that what are you gonna do with that now where does the light come from God is the source of that light but he chooses to shine through people, doesn't he? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, John 8, 12, but he also tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. God is the source, but he chooses to work through people. Are you cooperating with that? Are you getting that in the midst of crisis? Do you even think about that? Do you realize that God sometimes can work through you in ways in crisis he can't work through you in other times? I mean, have you, maybe you've seen this in the life of somebody you, you love and respect, and you just really respect their faith. And it's like, no matter how hard it gets for them, they stand firm, and there's peace. And you, and you just kind of want to ask them, how do you do that? Right? Well, Isaiah is helping us by saying the first thing is you walk towards the light. Okay? That's the light of God, but it's also another name for Jesus, isn't it? And you're going to see that play out that the answer is jesus verses three through five give us our second point which is that we rejoice in our victor watch this verse three you have enlarged the nation you is again pointing to god you god have enlarged the nation of israel the nation combined and increased their joy you're going that's a theme that you're going to see right here rejoice in the victor Um, There's a lot here that is probably a little confusing, so let me see if I can unpack it. First of all, he enlarged the nation, increased their joy, and then he talks about rejoicing like the farmer when he gets his harvest. So most of us can't relate to being a farmer. Most of us don't understand that when all of your income and food relies on the crop coming in, we just can't relate to that because we just go to Publix and get what we want. All right, so um, I am not a good gardener, but I try. I try. All right. And usually I plant several plants and all die except for the jalapeno bush. It always makes it for some reason. And when I get a jalapeno pepper, let me tell you, and I don't even like them, but my wife likes them. So I take that. I hold it high. I hold it. I'm proud of this green jalapeno pepper. And once in a while it gets red and I take it into the house and I go, we got one. I'm excited. I am joyfully rejoicing for my jalapeno pepper. Okay, now that's kind of silly, right? And it's a little over the top. But a farmer is not over the top when they say, we got through pestilence, we got through flood, we got through drought, and we have acres and acres and acres of harvest that has come in. <sighs> Let's rejoice. And they literally celebrate. And they have a big party, and they eat lots of food, and it's just like, yes. And if they're a people of faith, they thank God for that. That's rejoicing. Okay, so let's see if we can think of something else that maybe is a little easier to relate to. Now, most of us are not in the military. Those of you who are, you would understand to a degree what it's like to win a battle. Now, most of you haven't fought in a war, but you've heard stories, and so you have some sense of that. Most of us, we can't really relate to that. We have to read, we read the history books, and we go, 1776, yep, yawn. We don't really understand and appreciate the victory that was there, okay? But some of us can understand the battle in the trenches of football. Or basketball or whatever sport you played um, soccer whatever you know and, and you you practice and practice and practice and then there's the championship game and you finally made it, and you win and you're what are you doing you're jumping up and down you're screaming and hollering and acting very undignified because you're celebrating you're rejoicing you're excited because we won and it's just a silly game don't tell the NFL I said that right They're talking about military victory where lives hang in the balance and people gave their lives to fight that battle on both sides. So when you win and you believe your cause is just, you celebrate. But he's talking about their cause is just. So he talks and he refers to another Old Testament story here when he talks about Midian. The Midianites were enemies of Israel back further, probably another 400 years before Isaiah, in in the time of the judges, 350-year period of time in the history of Israel when they didn't have kings yet, okay? And they were called, when, when they would cry out for a deliverer, a judge would be the name of the ruler that would take over. And there was this one guy, the scrawniest of 70 brothers. Now, that's scrawny. 70 he's the runt of the litter and the runt of the tribes of Israel and God comes to him and says Gideon I want you to lead the battle to defeat the Midianites and he's thinking man last night's pizza is really getting to me because this dream is just not not okay but sure enough God is asking the weakest link to be the point of the spear and long story short 300, we don't know exactly, but just imagine 300,000 troops from Midian who are oppressing the nation of Israel because of their sin. God let it happen, and so they would cry out to him in repentance and begging for mercy. God sends a deliverer, Gideon, really? And this deliverer rallies 30,000 troops, 32,000 troops, which is, you know, not bad number until you compare it to 300,000 it's like this is one in 10 we're kind of outnumbered here but then God said God knows no no this is this is going to look like like Gideon did it so he says Gideon tell any of those 32,000 if they're scared they can go home and 12,000 go home or more it might have been 20,000 then he does one more test to weed it down and they end up with 300 Okay, this is not the movie 300 you're thinking about, but it's another 300, okay? Wasn't, it was, this one might have been more bloody, but not one Israelite died, and they won without swinging a sword, okay? That's how big God is, all right? And so now, how when I read this, listen to it, okay? You have shattered the yoke, but for as in the day of Midian's defeat, Okay? that would, You could have said in the day of Gideon's victory, but he didn't say Gideon's victory. Because why? Because Gideon didn't do it. He did stand firm in his faith in crisis, but God did it. This is the point. When we walk toward the light, we're walking towards God because we're believing he is able and he cares. When we rejoice in the victor, We don't just rejoice in the victory. We're remembering there's a victor, and the victor, the one who made it possible, is Christ. And then we go to the, so he says, for in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. And then he says this, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will will uh, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What's he saying? God isn't just leading them to win the battle. He's he's leading, leading them to the end of battles, when there are no more battles. I know that you don't believe me when I say this, but the Bible says there's coming a day when we won't need guns, when we won't need swords. And the only reason you'll need a knife is because you've got to cut the chicken in the kitchen, right? Garden tools. Our weapons will be melted down and made into garden tools because there will be no more war. True peace, not just the absence of conflict, shalom peace, the wholeness that comes when you know and trust and fully rely on God to carry you. Does that sound like good news to you? That that day's coming? That the best is yet to come? That in Christ, that is a guarantee? That should encourage you in the midst of crisis. To look to the one, the victor, the light, the God child. Look at verses six. At verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son. I'm sorry, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. God's answer to us being in the midst of terror attacks is He sends a child. Not impressive to the nations, to the people, right? But God loves to do what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, where he says, in, my, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. God loves to win the battles. No one thinks he can win, that can be won, because then he gets the glory because no one else could have pulled that off. But he did It does over and over and over. Read your Bible. You see it over and over and over. And if it happened here, it can happen there. And it does if you have eyes to see and stand firm in your faith, in the light, in the victor, in the God child. Look at this. This passage is all about God being fully divine and becoming flesh and becoming human, putting on humanity. Watch this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. This is a way of saying he's gonna carry the responsibility of ruling one day fully. He'll be fully in charge. The kingdom of darkness will be wiped away and he will stand and sit on his throne and he will rule as a good godly king, shepherd king should and would. And he'll do it perfectly. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's unpack this. This is described Jesus. Okay? He doesn't use the word Jesus, but he is talking about the Messiah. Okay? Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. The only difference is the language. We're talking about the Messiah. Okay? Who has come? We celebrate at Christmas. He came and we will celebrate again because he's coming again. He's coming again and we are one day closer than we were yesterday to his return. Okay? Yes, amen. That's right. That's good news because I'm really tired of the headlines because there's no hope in those headlines but they're there and what I feel is what I feel and you feel it too wonderful counselor wonderful just amazing amazing you know just like it sounds just um, hard to explain counselor refers to someone who doesn't just have knowledge this is someone who knows how to apply that knowledge to life we call it wisdom This is someone who always knows the right, not just the right thing to do, but the wise thing to do. I've heard it said that the the best question to ask, you can ask if this is right or wrong. But aren't there a lot of times when you and I have a decision to make and we ask the question, is this right or wrong? And we don't, we're like, that doesn't feel like the right question here. Because you have freedom and you could answer it either way, and in Christ, you'd be okay answering and going either way, right? Should I go to, well, I can't use that example. Um, I am just going to say college's choices. Okay, so um, should I go eat at this restaurant or should I go eat at this restaurant, right? God doesn't care which restaurant you go to, okay? I mean, not in general, all right? He might that day. So the question is, what's the wise choice? Anita is famous in our house for t- telling our girls when they would walk out the door, make wise choices. Because sometimes you have two legitimate choices, but the question isn't what's the, what's the right or wrong choice, because they're both okay. It's what's the wise choice. Wonderful counselor, Jesus always guides us to the wise choice, right? Which makes us squirm, because sometimes we just don't wanna do the wise thing. It's like, well, that doesn't sound as fun. Yes, but you'll come home. All right, then the next one is mighty God. Now, we're talking about the Messiah, right? And I know that it is popular in our day to call Jesus something less than fully God, okay? He's, like, he's God's son. That's a little different than God. Um, or he's um, like a, a, a demigod, okay? Um, you know, some of our favorite cults are, are called Jesus something less than who scripture teaches he is fully God. Just look right here, mighty God. He is Mighty, like a military ruler, with that all the power that that could entail at the ultimate level, but he's divine. He's not just sort of divine. He's not like God, but a little bit, you know, a different God. He's not. A, there's not but one God. Okay, and I understand that the confusion of that's like, well, is he son of God or is he God? Yes. I mean, I don't. I don't. If I could explain it, I would be God and that would clearly be a no, right? <laughs> we all know that's not the case. So we we have to understand there's some things in scripture we hold in tension because we can't quite comprehend the God who could speak and the universe began. Okay? I mean, we talk about I talk about our, our little grand our newest granddaughter, she's apparently got a really big set of lungs, okay? But I can't imagine God going bang. Right? I mean, that would be to have been there. All right, um, mighty God, everlasting Father. Now this was a little confusing to me on the surface. Everlasting is pretty easy, right? Forever. He's the Messiah, past, present, future, right? If He created us, then He's been around, okay? But Father, wait a minute. I thought God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. How can Jesus the Son be the Father? Think about the book of Luke and other places, when Jesus speaks to a a woman in Israel, what does he call her? When she has faith, when she is full of faith, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has healed you. He calls her daughter. Why does he call her daughter? Because he's God, okay? And God can handle being Father, Son, Holy Spirit at the same time because he's not one only and then he's only the other and then he's only the other, that's modalism. That's a heresy that goes back to the first century. He is always one God and he is always expressing himself through one or more of the three persons. And it's mysterious and it's supposed to be because he's so big and we're so small. I mean, imagine the ant trying to understand the internet. Right? And we're the ant, by the way. Sorry, didn't mean to offend, but there you go. Prince of Peace. Okay, so then I'm like, okay, well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was king, and now you're calling him prince. But you got to remember, this was written 2,700 years ago to a nation that had kings. And they knew that prophecy was there was going to be a king one day. He's not a king yet, a son of David, a descendant of David, who would become king. Uh, He would be the king of kings. He'd be the mac daddy of kings, okay? But right now, he's a prince because he's not king yet. Well, from our standpoint, we're like, come on, already? He's king, right? Yes, but you got to understand scripture in how it was written to the people it was written to. In that day. Did I just go out? All right, we'll give it another try. OK, so there, there's verse, and then, then it flips, OK? Isaiah is going to swing from verse 6 to 7 from the king, or the prince, OK, to the kingdom. Okay, and this is the last point. Six and seven are the last point. So let me review. We're gonna walk to the light, all right, and we're gonna rejoice in the victor, and we're gonna embrace the God King I'm sorry, the God Child as we anticipate his kingdom come. As we anticipate His kingdom come, and so we see the king or the prince right here in verse six, and then we get the description of the kingdom as we as we wrap this up of the greatness of His government. That's His kingdom. That's His realm, which is the universe, which He holds right here like a grain of sand. You know, we're going how many billion, how many million light years across this universe? He's going grain of sand in my palm, and that's really too big, but you know, we'll go with it. Of the greatness of His government and peace. There's that word, shalom, completeness, wholeness. No more ravages of sin or temptation or any, it's all gone, okay? Will not end. There will be no end, okay? That's what eternity means, okay? That's infinite in the future, okay? And that's where we're heading, either with God or without God. We're all heading towards eternity, Okay? There's the broad road that most people are on that leads to destruction. There's the narrow way that leads to life, few find it. But that's the way to go, folks. Follow me as I follow that Christ, okay? He's this guy. He's this God, okay? This is why I follow him, because this is amazing. This is amazing. If this person, God, is real, if this God child is real, I'm all over this. And you would be, too, if you were thinking straight. Because what else is better than a God who can be like this? who loves so much that though he deserves all worship and could do this to every one of us who don't, he comes and he dies for us. I don't know kings in history that were very generous or sacrificial, but that's the ultimate sacrifice. That king can't give us anything more than himself, his life. There's nothing more precious to him. Of the greatness of his government, the peace, there will be no end. He will reign, and this is he will No question, he will reign, rule on David's throne. Again, he's a descendant of David. And over his kingdom, establish, um, upholding it with justice and righteousness. There's the integrity. He is going to rule with justice and righteousness. There will be no congressional hearings required. How about that? Wouldn't it be nice if Congress would just rule and make laws instead of doing what they do? Establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness. Both of those are the fruit of one word. a word in church? Oh, don't say it, don't say it, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And justice and righteousness are fruit of holiness, just like mercy and grace are fruits of love. God is love, God is holy, God is true. You hear it? You see this? Why wouldn't we follow him? Why in the world? What option is better than that? I don't understand. And the only explanation I can think of is that the, the kingdom of darkness has blinded the eyes, and so we just don't see it. Okay? Well, God, I've been praying that you would open eyes, open eyes. Open our eyes. Because not only do we need to trust Him for our salvation, we need to trust Him for every area of our lives. And we go and we go, Yeah, I trust Jesus, I believe and I got baptized. Cha-ching, my fire insurance card is in place. And that is not at all what it's intended, is follow Jesus down the narrow way. Live that. And then he says this, from that time on and forever, so the etern- his kingdom is forever, his kingdom is holy. How is he going to pull this off? And he answers it in the very last words, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Have you all ever seen, um, uh, those uh, weightlifting competitions where they're trying to be the strongest man or, or strongest woman in the world, depending on the competition. And they, they, they've got these this barbell, and it's got, like, cars on each end or something ridiculous, and, and, and they lift it up. And, and the whole idea is to lift it up and put it up there, and then they just drop it, and it's like, you know. And they do it one time, and the place goes nuts when they get it up there, and the strongest man in the world is the one who lifts the most weight, right? Their faces get kind of red, don't they? like really red it's like they're gonna their eyeballs are gonna pop out or somebody looks like that is zeal that's what zeal is, is they have a passion to be the strongest now let me read the verse again the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this now I don't know if there's anything in in, in existence or even out of existence that could make God's face go red except passion for his glory And that's what's happening here. So our sweet little baby Jesus, when he gets red faced, it's not just because he's hungry. It's because he has zeal for his glory. And God gets the glory when the battle is won through the weakest means possible because there's no other explanation except God. How about this church? What if we began to live lives where our lives look to the world so amazingly weak and God worked through those and did amazing Gideon-like victories, they would look and go, I don't understand how that could happen. And you go, well, the only explanation is God, because I am standing firm in faith so that I will stand through crisis and whatever else this, this life brings me. I don't know what you're struggling with this Christmas. I don't know what your crisis is, believe me, I know what it's like to go through crisis at Christmas now and I know that He is faithful and he is able and he cares for you and Jesus on the cross is proof of that now if I was doing the giving moment I would have said give Jesus a birthday gift okay best birthday gift you can give him is if you don't know him but you see him now, the blinders have been removed, even for just a moment, if you would just lean into this and say, I want to follow him down that narrow way. What a gift you would have received and given. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming to rescue a people that do not deserve one bit of mercy one bit of grace. We deserve the wrath of God, every single one of us. But for some reason, and it's God, you in love chose to find a way, make a way to remain just and punish sin, but still show us mercy. And it cost you your son on a cross. He suffered for ours, for us. For your glory, yes, ultimately, that's why he did it, to obey his daddy and to show what it looks like when we fully live, fully yielded, and surrendered to our, to our father. But he also did it for us out of compassion and mercy for a people that were blind and hopeless. This Christmas, Lord, I pray that through all the beauty and the, and the nostalgia and, and the family and all that we get to enjoy as part of this season, I pray it would not we would not let this amazing gift get lost and we ask it in Jesus name